for UK investors only. This podcast is in association with Janice Henderson Investors. For promotional purposes, capital at risk. The past performance of an investment is not a reliable guide to its future performance. Nothing in this podcast should be construed as advice. Hi, and welcome to the Master Investors Podcast. Today's guest is Ben Lofthouse of Henderson International Income Trust. We'll be talking about why investors should look further afield than the UK in their search for income. And we'll also be taking a closer look at some of the investment themes that drive Ben's approach to income investing. Here's the podcast, and I hope you enjoy listening. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the show. My name is James Faulkner. I'm joined by Ben Lofthouse of Henderson International Income Trust. Hi, Ben. Happy New Year. Thank you very much. Nice to see you. So Henderson International Trust invests across um, a broad range of global markets, excluding the UK. That obviously makes it a useful diversification tool for UK-based investors. But with the the UK market yielding, you know, 4.5% or something like that at the moment, it's one of the best yielding international markets. Why should UK investors be looking overseas for income, do you think, right now? Yeah, it's, it's a good question, James. I think when, when we go back to why we set up Henderson International Income Trust to not invest in the UK, um, it wasn't because we, there are any particular issues with the UK, but the, the major one that comes up is concentration. So actually what you see in the UK is a lot of the, the larger dividend paying stocks, such as your HSBCs, your GlaxoSmithKline's, BPs, you know, they make up large parts of the index. And as a UK investor, uh, when you invest in a number of different products, say in the UK, to try and diversify your risk, because that's the aim of investing in different products, you can end up with owning a lot of the same stocks because they're large parts of the index. And particularly in the income world, they make up a large part of the UK dividend income. So actually 10 stocks effectively make almost 50% of the dividends paid by the UK. Mm. And whilst people tend to assume that stock-specific risk is something that you diversify you know, away from a portfolio by investing, and that maybe does, won't affect you. In recent years, you know, in the 2007, eight, nine crisis, the big banks were a big part of that, and they saw yeah. their dividends cut. Macondo, when it hit, was a stock-specific risk that only hit BP and didn't hit other oil stocks. So really, our investments overseas are primarily to reduce that stock-specific risk for you as a UK investor, so you can know that we're not doubling up. Because quite a few other global income funds do also include these UK stocks for the reason you talk about. The other important reason is accessing different sectors and different growth factors that aren't well represented within the United Kingdom's market. Technology, for example, which is really underweight in the the UK market. Yeah, I think that's that's a good example. So we have... um, you know, it has considerable weight in the technology sector. Um, it's, you know, one of our biggest sectors. And what we've seen over recent years is actually at times, the sector has become very unloved, but a lot of the companies there are quite much more mature than they were and they're generating a lot more cash. So they've put their dividends up quite a lot. So you're suddenly finding situations where, you know, large, high quality market leading technology stocks quite often offer you three to four percent yields particularly in periods when the sector is unloved uh, and actually those those companies are you know very well positioned for the long term so mm. that's a classic sector that it's hard to get exposure to particularly if you're investing you know for income from the UK market 
lately you've been um, cutting exposure to North America and emerging markets whilst adding to positions in Europe and the Asia-Pacific region. Is that the result of some sort of top-down macroeconomic view or is that basically the, you know, just the, the, the result of um, some stock-specific movements? It's mainly stock-specific movements. So we are, you know, we are, if you think of us, the best way to think about us is dividend-seeking, valuation-driven investors. So we do have, you know, a view that part of the money that you make and took part of the total return you make from an investment is the dividend. And there's another part that is valuation. And so the valuation that you invest in is important. And for, from a stock specific point of view, uh, you know, some sectors and some stocks over recent years have had quite a good run, particularly in the US. Uh, and we've been reducing some of those and investing in other stocks in other sectors and other regions. As an income investor, um, corporate governance and the dividend culture of a, a particular country is really important, isn't it? I'm interested, which countries and regions do you think have, um, have registered the biggest improvements in, in dividend culture over the, the past um, few years? And which ones do you expect to show the biggest improvements going forward, do you think? Yeah, I think over the last, I'd say kind of 15 to 20 years, the sector that has, the, the region that has increased its dividend yield most has actually been Europe. Right which surprises some people. So if you go back to the 90s, it wasn't a very high yielding mm. market and the pay it ratios were relatively low. And you've seen a combination of the market not performing very well, whilst dividends have gone up, have ended up with it, you know, having quite a high dividend yield, even though the pay it ratio is, you know, is reasonable around 60%. In the more, in recent years, the biggest changes have actually come from Asia. So in both Korea and Japan, you've seen governments trying to encourage companies to pay out more dividends in different ways. Mm. Um, and that's partly because they can see these very large cash balances sitting in the companies mm. uh, and they want to get those out out into the system because what people often forget when they comment on dividends versus capital expenditure and which is best for, for, for society is that a lot of things like pension funds, charities, individual owners do own shares in one way or another and so the dividends, when they get paid out, do get reinvested somewhere or mm. they help drive drive spending. In the latest annual report, you talked about the valuation divergence between growth and value stocks. And that's been going on for quite some time now, hasn't it, since the, the financial crisis. Do you think we're headed for that long-awaited renaissance of, of value over growth? Or do you think that growth's got some, some way to go yet? Yeah, I think it. people look at it quite simplistically. And so sometimes there are companies that are in the kind of value camp or value bucket that actually turn out to be you know, good companies and growth companies in the future. Some of the pharma net, pharmaceutical names a few mm. years ago were very much in the value area. And actually, when you look closely at them, they've, they've got a lot of innovation and they were just going through a bit of a dull patch. I think what, what I'd say is at the moment, one of the big things that's happening in the world is disruption. And the value area of the market does contain a lot of businesses that are being disrupted. Mm. And that disruption, I think normally you assume companies will react to disruption and and then find a way to sort of solve the problem. But if we look like a sector like retail, actually it's, it's been disrupted for 20 years and it's not getting any better. It hasn't managed to find mm. the solution to the likes of Amazon and online, and it still probably has too much exposure to, to physical property. 
and that, that there's a number there are a number of sectors within this kind of value cohort so i think people have to be a bit careful of assuming it's going to be a you know just yeah. a sharp kind of value rotation but that's not saying that the valuation differentials aren't enormous and i think for some of those areas that are also now in the in the growth camp they're not actually growing that quickly so there's a, quite a few businesses that have just been re-rated because they're safe or def- defensive or they're showing a little bit of growth at the moment that might be more vulnerable to the fu- in the future so I'd be a little bit more careful about assuming that there's a sudden value snapback, mm. but I think there is a lot of there are lots of really interesting companies that are in the value category. Yeah, and you know, on a te- on a five to ten year view, I think I'd expect some of those companies to significantly outperform. You spoke about Microsoft, and that's an interesting one because that actually sat in the value category at one point, mm. didn't it? But then it's it kind of turned into a bit of a growth stock. I'm just wondering, are there any other sort of situations where you see a, a similar sort of scenario playing out in the future? Yeah, I think the, um, I mean, one of the areas that's playing through at the moment that people, you know, have viewed in the past as purely cyclical and which actually the barriers to entry are higher than you think is the semiconductor market. Right. So both in the equipment area um, and in the production, uh, you're seeing actually, you know, the, the intellectual property barriers are much higher than people think. And so yeah, that's, that's an area I think where people in the past have kind of assumed that everyone can make semiconductor chips. And actually what we're finding is it links into many of the things that we're seeing in everyday life, increased technology usage, if we're gonna have autonomous cars, all the data that we store on our phones, on our iPads, all the media we consume, it's all stored somewhere. There are big growth in data centers. So I think that's, you know, that, that, that's quite a classic example of something that people have viewed for years as quite commoditized. Mm which is turning out to have a lot more specialization in there. And you're starting to see, you know, people appreciate that more. Pharmaceuticals, I think, are an interesting area. Um, they, they generally, you know, people worry about pricing pressures in, in the US and they worry about products and old established products going ex-patent and new competition coming along. But at the same time, there's an incredible amount of innovation in there and there's an incredible increasing amount of technological innovation tackling some really serious you know, diseases like cancer mm. that again the ability to earn good revenues on a longer time scale is you know, could, could be greater than people expect in a sector like that so you know those would be two areas within the portfolio that we're looking at that both where technology is you know is driving them mm. and that people you know are underestimating some of the barriers to entry and what are the other long-term drives of the portfolio in terms of sector allocation do you think i think that this idea you know the, the idea of this you know technological revolution that we're going through has got a long way to run mm. and so there are lots of different ways of, of playing that in different sectors so i've mentioned you know the pharmaceutical sector and the healthcare sector but you get other areas such as in the the REIT space the real estate investment trust space in some markets we're seeing new REITs being set up that contain things like data centers, mm-hmm. telecom towers. So the telecom sector itself has, has not been a great investment for, yeah. for in a lot of countries because of competition and regulation. But actually, the data growth that we've all experienced has been enormous. Yeah. And so that would be that be an area. I think we're seeing quite a, a big focus on um, this carbon transition, you know, and, and we're, there's more and more focus on how we deal with uh, carbon emissions and how we reduce waste in general and packaging mm. waste. Um, so again, in the portfolio, 
you know, we have a company like Veolia or a company like Enel, both of which are in the utility space, one of which, you know, is a key solution to collecting and improving the packaging disposal process, recycling levels, where we see probably increased penetration, you know, increase is going to happen for that. You know, there's going to be an increasing volume of our waste that we have to divert away from just shipping overseas or into landfill and into some sort of recycling capability. And then something like NL, where you've seen quite a traditional utility investing a lot in renewables and moving, you know, in people's perception Mm -hmm. to actually be much higher growth rate than people think, and actually a much, you know, much better company than it was four or five years ago. So there are quite, there are a lot of really interesting things going on. What none of them really relate to is pure economic growth, I think, or QE or or these types of areas. Yeah. And, and people kind of tend to think that that's what's driving everything. And actually underlying, there are some really interesting business trends going on. The, the one we haven't invested in, but we should keep looking at is electric cars. Right. You know, again, you know, the, the car industry has been through this ter- this incredible change. It's still going through it, but there's an enormous amount of investment going on. And so at some point you have to assume that some of these car companies that we look at will be, you know, with us in the future and we'll still be driving their products. And maybe they are in some way, maybe the Microsofts and the Taiwan Semiconductors mm. of, of six to seven years ago. So of course, a lot of the car manufacturers are on really cheap valuations at the moment, aren't they? But they are. Yeah, they are. And, and rightly so. It's, a, it's an uncertain future. Mm. But I think that's probably what I see as the, the biggest opportunity in the market at the moment into a question that you asked earlier. Is this this kind of relationship between you know growth and value, and the distance between kind of people's outlook for the two groups is mm. enormous. So the rewards for finding a, a value stock that turns into a growth stock. Yeah, are high, company. and yeah. at the moment that what's priced in is very low. So we do continue to look for these things, mm. and I think you know many of the things that are in the top ten now were things you know six to seven years ago that people didn't want, and and I think that will be the same. 10 years from now. Mm. Um, I was surprised to see the the very low allocation to the Japanese market, given that you mm-hmm. know a, a lot of investors see that as a good hunting ground right now for, for value stocks. I just wondered what, what your rationale is behind that. Yeah, it's, it's a good <clears throat> question. I think what we found is, is the stocks that have yield actually are probably not the most interesting stocks in that market. Right. It's probably the easiest way to do it. So, yeah. you know, you can find auto companies, you can find tobacco companies, you can find banks with high yields in Japan, but you can find those anywhere in the world. And so they're not particularly different. Right. I think what what we've struggled to find there are companies where perhaps we're seeing real corporate change. So I think we've seen a lot of people talking about corporate change and improving balance sheets and maybe breaking up businesses. I think what we still find more often than not is they tend to, you know, look to buy companies overseas rather than restructure at home in order to change their growth profiles, and quite often historically that hasn't hasn't been particularly successful for them. So it's you know it's not saying the Japanese market is a bad market. Mm. It's just saying for us when we look at our other opportunities around the world that that have yield, we're finding them elsewhere. You recently secured some long term funding for the portfolio at quite low interest rates. What implications does that have for the trust? Yeah, I mean, it, I think it's got implications. The, the wider implications are just, you know, the, you know, the, there are very, very low bond rates available. 
at the moment, and they are significantly below the dividend yields of the companies that we own. For us, issuing the debt at this point was twofold. One, we decided to issue European debt. So one of the key risks, you know, to be fair for people who invest in Henderson mm-hmm. International Income Trust is it's a sterling denominated vehicle with no sterling assets. Right. Which makes us, you know, sensitive to currency movements. Mm-hmm. We've had a number of years of weak uh, sterling versus other currencies. And what we've done here is issue debt in euros. So that helps if you, if you see, you know, we're hedging yeah. some of the currency risk because we own European assets and we've taken out some European borrowing. Yeah. The added advantage of that is that with the negative rates, negative interest rates available, uh, you know, across many parts of the European debt market, people were willing to fund us at quite a low rate mm. for 25 years. So I think, you know, I feel confident on a long-term basis that the portfolio return, you know, will will be greater than the debt return. And I think for the takeaway for shareholders is, you know, this is an enhancing proposition mm. on a long-term basis. It has the added advantage of, you know, giving us funding in case debt markets do get tougher, which we have seen in periods before. In the annual report, you said that you don't see any signs of uh, irrational exuberance right now, and that obviously market participants remain quite risk averse. What What's your outlook for 2020? And can this decade-long bull market continue chugging along for investors for you know another few years to go? I'm always loath to kind of give one-year forecasts <laughs> because actually, you know, very people find it, it's almost impossible to predict kind of anything on a one-year basis from a, a particular starting point. What I what I do feel is that one of the key things that normally happens towards the end of a cycle that causes a cycle to deteriorate and stock markets to fall uh, are interest rate increases. And I think you know this, you know, where we were versus a year ago. There are a lot more countries that are easing rates because growth isn't that strong that are, than there are about tightening them. And I think that is a, a positive backdrop generally for equities. Um, and that's partly why they've been rallying over the last few months. I think on a, you know, what's easier to say is, you know, on, on a five to 10 year view, the portfolio and large parts of equity markets uh, don't look different than they have in the past in terms of valuation. Uh, the dividend yields, you know, are again in line with history despite very low rates elsewhere. So I'm not sure there's anything that particularly suggests, you know, future returns on on an average basis over the next few years should be should be worse than historic returns. So I don't know if that is it slightly ducks your question on a <laughs> one year view, but I think you know, long term, I think you know it's, it's it still looks an interesting proposition for. Um, for equities. What, what I would say is, I think what people don't appreciate is there have been lots of cycles within this cycle. So if you've been in the UK, for example, for the last two years, you've had a, you know, a tougher part of the economic cycle, mm. partly related to Brexit uncertainty. If you were in Italy and Greece a few years ago, you had a much tougher, and Spain, you had a really mm. tough economic cycle when they were trying to deal with the, um, with the debt, the government debt and the trying to deal with the banks and improve the bank stability. China, you know, had a big slowdown in 2016 and then started to rally again after that. So again, if you'd been in the oil sector, you know, a couple of yeah. years ago, you had a really big recession effectively. So I, I, I'm not kind of, I don't buy into this that 
we've had this long, smooth sailing period of stock markets. I think when you look at the US stock market chart, it looks that way. <laughs> but in lots of other subsectors and regions around the world, you've had regular resets that have reminded people that things go down as well as up. Uh, I think I think when I said that I don't see irrational exuberance, I think you know in listed equity markets as a whole, I'm not sure I do. Mm. I think what we've seen actually is that very low interest rates have caused you know, remarkable things to happen in the areas yeah. of classic cars, wine, stamps, <laughs> you know, high level property. So I'm not saying there's no exuberance anywhere because of mm. low rates. Uh, I'm just saying I don't see it across large parts of the equity market. Ben Lofthouse, thank you very much. Thank you for your time. Don't forget, you can access more great content, including Master Investor Magazine at masterinvestor.co.uk. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can support us by hitting the subscribe button and by leaving a review. If you've got any suggestions about who you'd like us to interview or topics you'd like us to cover, please send us an email at info at masterinvestor.co.uk. Thanks for listening. Before investing in any investment referred to in this podcast, you should satisfy yourself as to its suitability and the risks involved. Nothing in this podcast is a recommendation or solicitation to buy, hold or sell any investment. Tax assumptions and reliefs depend upon an investor's particular circumstances and may change if those circumstances or the law change. Issued in the UK by Janice Henderson Investors. Janice Henderson Investors is the name under which investment products and services are provided by Henderson Investment Funds Limited. Registered in England and Wales at 201 Bishopsgate, London, EC2M3AE and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority. Janice Henderson, Janice, Henderson, and Knowledge Shared are trademarks of Janice Henderson Group, PLC, or one of its subsidiaries. Copyright, Janice Henderson Group, PLC.